0: Welcome to Open Book Unbound. Morning, Marjorie. Hi Claire, how are you doing this morning? Well I'm just looking out the office window and this is the first time in weeks and weeks and weeks that I've looked out to rain. It's a bit grey uh, and drab today but I'm guessing the garden's really going to appreciate a good drukhyn.
1: Or your kids will really appreciate not having to hose everything down every night I bet. That's true. How are you? Good. Listen, I have a confession to make. I'm eating cake again this morning. Today it's highly controversial banana, peanut butter, chocolate, loaf.
0: I'm not sure
1: what we think about peanut butter in the middle of banana bread but I figure it's got protein it's got fruit and carbohydrates so basically it's breakfast right
0: yeah I'm sure it counts as one of your five a day I think um we might have to have podcast recording mornings be cake days good idea that's a bit of a challenge isn't it what what cake will we bring to the podcast (laughs) wait for it for next week
1: This week, we'll be looking at a longer short story by Jan Carson called Egg. And it's longer than her postcard style stories that she's doing for us as our writer in lockdown. And we'll also be looking at an Alistair Reid poem, Curiosity. And we've chosen these two because this is the week we're focusing on future, the theme of future for the Scottish Book Trust campaign, looking ahead to Book Week Scotland this year. And we're thinking about the ways that we tackle and think about and plan for the future. And both the story and the poem sort of look at contrasting ways of how we manage those situations. Do you want to start us off on the
0: story, Claire? Yeah, I'd love to. You were born with a bird's egg tucked inside your hand. It looked like a starling's egg, but it could just as easily have been a robin's. They're a very similar shade. Your eyes are the same high August blue. You're also lightly freckled. At first, I did not notice the egg. I was drunk on the just-born smell of you. Your foldable arms, your ears and feet, which were just like adult feet, only greatly reduced. I was worn out from all the pushing and shoving, then the sudden rush of you, coming in a flood at the end. This is really happening, your father said, and just like that, it was already over. You came thundering out of me, fist first, fingers curled round your thumb, tight as a walnut shell. After your arm came your head, a second arm, and a single torso. A pair of pancake flat buttocks and two legs with feet like full stops clamouring on either end. You were all there, every bit of you in the proper place and working. Every bit but your left arm, which stayed stubbornly up for almost a week. He's ready to punch anybody that gets in his way, your father said, and laughed like this was a good thing. I didn't think it was. You seemed far too furious for a brand new person. Is this normal? I asked. It was not normal. The midwife had never delivered a fist first baby before. Don't panic, she said. He seems fine. I'll just check him over to be sure. Then she whisked you away for weight and length and swaddling in a clean white blanket. When you returned, you looked exactly like babies are meant to look all blink eyed and freshly pink. If I held you right, I couldn't even see your strange arm sticking up from under the blankets. Isn't he perfect, I said. Your father didn't reply. His face was trying not to fold. What's he holding, he asked, unpeeling the blanket to examine your curled fist. Nothing, I said. It takes babies a while to uncurl. He's been bunched up inside me for nine months. No wonder he came out funny. I think he's holding something, your father said. He could see the pale of it glowing between your fingers. I took your little nugget of a hand in my own and began to unpeel your fingers. I went at you slowly, gently, like tiny steps on ice. Baby fingers are brittle as birds' legs. I didn't want to snap you. It took a minute, maybe 90 seconds, to prise your hand open. Your father and the midwife hung over me, holding their breath, as if just the thinnest puff of it might break you. I could see parts of the egg straight away, but I didn't see anything until it was fully exposed. It's an egg, I said. The baby's come out holding a bird's egg. No one spoke. There wasn't even a peep out of you. I lifted the egg and held it very gently between my finger and thumb. It was almost like holding air. So light, so easy to ruin. This was inside me, I said. How did it get there? My own voice was swimming away from me. I thought I might faint. Did you swallow it? asked the midwife. No, no, that makes no sense. How would the baby get hold of it? Your father had gone a funny shade of grey. Like a thing that was once white, then washed too often. He perched himself on the edge of the bed, And asked to see the egg. I tried to place it directly into his hand, but he insisted on a tissue. He would not look me directly in the eye. You don't think there's another baby inside it? he asked. It's a bird's egg, said the midwife. Probably a starling. Babies don't come out of eggs. A starling, your father repeated softly. He lifted the egg to his ear the way you would with seashells listening for the ocean. The egg didn't make any noise. He looked disappointed. Then he shook it, reasonably hard. Stop it, I yelled. You'll kill it. It's only a starling. There's hundreds on the telephone wires at the end of the road. This one was inside me. It's mine. I want to see what comes out of it. Later, looking back, I would realise that this was the precise moment I began to love the egg. Shall we stop there just for a minute? What a start to a story. I know. Well, even before we get to the egg,
1: I was taken with the beginning of this story as someone who's had four children. You know, how absolutely correct the sort of description of having a new baby, being in the room and labor. She does such a brilliant job, I think, of reducing that to a kind of paragraph. Being drunk on the just born smell and all the little foldable parts of a baby. This is really happening, you know. That just that sort of response is so familiar to me. Like someone who's not actually going through the process would suddenly go, "Oh, wait, it's really happening." Whereas, you know, if you're the woman whose body has been trying to get the baby out for hours, you're pretty clear on what's happening.
0: I love the greatly reduced adult feet. Bit. <laughs> yeah, and I remember quite clearly, like taking lots of photographs of my baby's tiny feet and tiny hands when they were first born, sort of compared to my own or compared to my husband's because they just are exactly that. They're just like teeny miniature versions. And although that, logically isn't surprising i think when you see it it's really striking Mm. and i thought the pancake flat buttocks was a brilliant description as well yeah
1: exactly almost like little wings you know it's just yeah gorgeous i remember it being the same but with fingernails just being
0: shocked at how tiny and perfect they were but of course they were do you remember the first time you cut baby's fingernails oh god yeah i think i'm still traumatized So
1: what do we make of the egg? Well, here's one question before we get to that. This idea that the father didn't reply because he was trying not to fold. His face was trying not to fold.
0: I guess for me, it was that sort of just moment of realisation that, you know, he'd become a father. And that the trying not to fold was trying not to just become really emotional and cry. What did you think? Yeah,
1: I think it came. Well, for me, at first, I thought it was just trying not to cry. And then I realised it comes at that moment where he realises the child is holding something. So the next line is, what's he holding? Which makes me wonder if he suddenly thinks something's wrong. Because of course, in those incredibly intense moments, they're incredibly joyous, but they're also intensely full of worry. That's the moment you think, have they got all their fingers and toes? You know, is everything, are they breathing? You know, all those sorts of things that you anticipate can go wrong. And then what do we make of the egg? Do you believe it? Has she allowed us to suspend disbelief at this point?
0: I think you accept it. I think you say, oh, the baby's holding an egg.
1: Yeah, and I wonder if it's because she's done the job of telling us that in the very first line of the story. So the very first line of the story is, you were born with a bird's egg tucked inside your hand. So already we know this is going to happen. And then she backs up and takes us through the birth. Whereas I wonder if we'd gotten through the birth and then they unclasp the hands and we find the egg, we would have then gone, hang on a minute. But it's almost like she set up the premise
0: so you think that gap between that introduction and then when we come back to the egg kind of gives our brain a chance to get used to the idea mm-hmm. and so that that helps us accept it. Yeah. I, I hadn't thought about it that
1: way. It's almost like those stories where they tell you somebody dies at the beginning and so you yeah. can kind of almost get on with enjoying the story without worrying about what's going to happen. It's definitely a tactic, but I think it works beautifully here because by the time we get to it's an egg, I'm like, yeah, of course it's an egg. So we're suddenly in the kind of not in the disbelief moment, whereas the midwife's going, hang on a minute, and the father is asking questions, right?
0: I think the description the eggs absolutely gorgeous as well in here and it's just so evocative that, that that bit where it talks about it was almost like holding air so light so easy to ruin which
1: feels like that same in some ways that same feeling of holding a baby you know when you're holding a newborn baby you're just terrified because they're so tiny and so light and yet a fully formed being you know so I feel like in some way she is describing how a new mother or a new parent or, or, or even worse someone who's who isn't the parent of that child might feel holding that child.
0: There's a certain tension of the peeling back of the fingers and not wanting to break mm. the baby's brittle fingers and then the egg and, and the tension about not breaking it and being so easy to ruin and, and her feeling faint. And then we just get it broken by the midwife's silly question and the father going the shade of washed laundry. Yeah. Which I think really, really sort of breaks the tension and, and gives us a little chance to catch our breath for a moment. Shall we keep reading? Yeah.
1: We had not been expecting an egg. It hadn't appeared on any of our ultrasound scans. We'd printed them all out and stuck them on the fridge door so our friends would see and know you were finally a real thing, not just wishful thinking or fingers crossed for the next try. Your scans are still up there, next to the grocery list and the takeaway menus, next to a photo of the egg on its fifth birthday apple-sized you, curled up into yourself like a neatly tied lace, banana-sized with your feet scratching the ceiling of my belly, and finally you, swollen to the size of a large turnip, staring straight at us as if to say, I'm ready for out now. Later, your father would stand in front of the fridge for hours, forgetting what he'd come for as he stared at these grainy images. I'd find him there, just standing with a glass or empty bowl, his eyes microscoping across the fridge as he tried to see an eggshell ghosting through your clenched fist. It was harder for him. He hadn't carried you, or the egg. No one had expected an egg. It was not normal. When the consultant arrived, he was unable to contain his shock. He called it a deformity, clamping a hand over his mouth to keep the disgust from creeping out. I could have clawed him for bringing such a dirty word into the room. "'I opened my mouth and howled. "'I couldn't stop. "'Now you've gone and upset my wife,' your father said. "'Did you have to use that word in front of her? "'If you ask me, it's not a deformity at all. "'It's more of an oddity.' "'Oddity was much better. "'This was how we spoke of your great Aunt Lily, "'who did not believe in washing "'or speaking to anyone who wasn't close kin. "'Shortly after this, your father would revise his thinking.' Then he'd call the egg a miracle and wonder if we shouldn't get the papers round for a photo. There was money to be made, he said, referencing the family down the road who'd found the face of Mary looming out of the muck on their Land Rover's windscreen. Hadn't they made a fortune selling their story to the press? Enough for a conservatory, or so the story went locally. The word deformity hung sourly in the air. The consultant carted you down the corridor to a room where you were examined for other extra parts. Wings, horns, halos. The possibility of a second heart murmuring softly behind your ribcage. Of course they found nothing. You were just a normal baby, born with a bird's egg. No one knew how it got there, or why it had not shattered beneath the pressure of your fingers or the force of being born. After a week, they let us take you home. The egg came too. I know you wish we'd left it behind. Your father felt similarly... He was all for throwing it in the bin. Nothing's coming out of that egg, he said. Let's go home and get the baby settled. But I couldn't shrug the feeling that there were two of you to look after now. I can't leave the egg behind, I said. G- it grew inside of me. It might still hatch. Your father could see the strain of this stretched into my jaw, a tiny nerve flexing just beneath the skin. There was no turning me, not when I dug my heels in. We took the egg home and made an incubator for it. An old shoebox lined with tinfoils some cotton flannels and a desk lamp angled down like a drooped tulip. I hoped the heat would bring it on. I'll set it up in the utility room, your father said, but I insisted on the nursery. I wanted the two of you in the same room, together, equal, neither child favoured. I dragged an old armchair into the space between you, measuring the distance so I was not a centimeter nearer to either one. I dozed constantly, waking to feed you, to bathe and change you. I told you you were the most precious boy in the world and meant it. Please remember that. I woke to turn the egg back to front to back again, shuffling the heat gently round its shell. I leaned over the incubator and whispered soft, coaxing words. Come on out now. We can't wait to meet you. I meant it. Every whispered word. So this is where it
0: starts to get a bit weird for me.
1: I think there's a real explanation buried in the description of the images on the fridge, which I hadn't noticed when I first heard it on the radio. And And I actually remember standing in the kitchen listening to this story. Probably it struck a nerve for various reasons for me, but I don't remember this part until I read it this morning. And this idea that it wasn't wishful thinking or fingers crossed for the next try signals that this is a person who's been trying to have children for a long time. And certainly in my head, she's a woman who's lost pregnancies. And for me, that puts a whole different taint on the way that she behaves. She's acting like a woman who is still grieving those losses and for some reason that egg is the kind of physical manifestation of the ones that didn't come to pass, you know, the babies that she lost or whatever, or even if they're the the hopes that she had and, and she didn't manage to get pregnant. For some reason, it seems to have taken on a physical form. And the other thing that comes to mind is how many women do we know between us that have experienced postnatal depression? And that mm-hmm. comes out in completely different ways. You know, and this strikes me as possibly just a version of that. She's got this beautiful baby and, and yet she's still experiencing a kind of loss.
0: It did really remind me, though, of those first few weeks after you come home from hospital with your first baby, when you do feel slightly out of control and almost out of yourself. I have a a dear cousin down in London who's just had her first baby under lockdown, effectively. And so we've been speaking quite a lot on the phone and by text over the last few weeks. And for her, all these feelings are so massively amplified, you know, just really brought back to me the whole craziness of those first few weeks but for her massively amplified.
1: And the idea that you wouldn't even be able to reach out or have a break, because also days become nights become days, time changes in those first few weeks. And they're precious. For most people, they're really precious time to kind of hunker down and connect. But also I wonder about the relationship with the father who gets called your father through the story. He doesn't have a name.
0: I have a sense that he's kind of tried his best when he tries to sit up in the utility room and when he says, I'd wished... We hadn't brought the egg home and so did your father. It doesn't feel to me that she was really open to taking on board his views on this particular issue. She strikes me as a person who's not well, right? So she's because she's
1: saying her explanation for his silence and staring at the fridge is that it's harder for him because he hadn't carried you or the egg. I don't think that's why he's staring at the fridge. I think he's trying to figure out what the heck to do.
0: He's quite defensive of her, though, and quite protective of her when the consultant upsets her.
1: Maybe he thinks she'll just snap out of it. Maybe he thinks the best thing to do is just leave her be.
0: Will we finish it off? Yeah. Should we read the last section? Yeah. When I dreamt, it was mostly of the egg. The way the shell would one day split in two, fracturing and peeling in strips to reveal a small creature inside. Something which required care. Sometimes this creature was a bird. Sometimes a very small child, no bigger than a bottle top. Mostly it was a warm but indefinite impression. Not quite a ghost, but similar and equally hard to describe when awake. In the early days, I told your father these dreams, explaining each one in detail. Then I stopped. Your father wasn't interested in the egg. He never had been. It was just an oddity to him all for the need to humour me. You thrived, you slept all night, you sat up, moved on to solids, took your first fumbly steps, you made noises, then fully formed words. The egg didn't. The egg grew no bigger or smaller. It simply sat there on its flannel, occasionally vibrating when a large truck drove past the house. But I couldn't bring myself to give up on it. I kept turning it front to back four times an hour for months, then years. I put my back out, leaning over its incubator to whisper stories and sing happy songs. I took photos of the two of you together on birthdays and at Christmas, ringing the eggs box and tinsel or birthday banners so it might know we were celebrating and take some small pleasure from this. I refused to go on holidays. We can't take the egg, I said and we can't leave it here by itself, it might hatch. It's never going to hatch, your father said, and when you were old enough for the rides, took you to Euro Disney, just the two of you, for a long weekend. I stayed home with the egg, reading, sleeping, hoping it might hatch while you were away and justify my absence. The egg did not hatch, and now I am in none of the photographs from your earliest holidays. Later, I would also miss out on Sports Day, Edinburgh, Legoland, and Parents' Night at your new school. There was no one else to sit with the egg. You grew old enough to find your own tongue. It's not fair, you said, over and over. You love that egg more than me. I don't, I said. It's just that it needs me more. It can't do anything for itself. I need you too, you said. But the truth was you didn't. You'd learnt to do almost everything for yourself. Your father was there for the rest. Shoelaces, doctor's appointments and the like. You went to him first for everything. I was proud when I saw you using the toaster and washing your own uniform and sometimes even fixing dinner for us all. I was also utterly ashamed. You were six then and already refusing to stand next to the egg in photographs. It's just an egg, you said, it's not an actual person. Even though I told you the story of how you'd come out of me, holding it gently in your left hand, you did not seem to see the miracle in it, only the oddness. Please, you'd say, can you just get rid of the egg? Your father would be there too, looking at me like I was a sort of soap opera character who is always saying, I don't have a problem. I can give up any time I want, and is actually addicted to alcohol or heroin or takeaway food. In the end, the egg broke. It was not your fault exactly. Your father has said this more times than I can count. You were only playing in your room, only getting on like normal boys do. You knocked into the box, the egg fell out and cracked itself on the floor. You didn't tell me immediately. You waited until we were all sat down for dinner. Sorry, mum, you said. I broke the egg. There was nothing inside it. I kept myself from crying in front of you. Your father would not let me punish you. Not even bed without supper. It was an accident, he said. I could see he wanted to smile. Later, when I went to clean the egg up, I noticed that it was not entirely empty. There was a tiny fleck of blood in the middle of the white, peering up at me like the eye in an overflashed photo. I thought of you then, tucked inside me, with an egg in your hand and an eye inside this egg. One precious thing inside another, like Russian dolls, or how we all are secretly inside. Ooh, I'm less and less sure of her by
1: the end of the story. The idea that it's not really about the egg, it's about some kind of grief that's just manifesting itself in this way and giving her a kind of hook to hang it on, if that makes sense. And while the egg's there, she's not able to make sense of it because the decisions she makes about missing sport. I mean, it's obvious that she never leaves
0: the house. And the things that are listed that she misses out are all things that it feels to me would have been very important to her son. Mm -hmm. It's so stark that I don't feel that she's actually
1: making a choice, if that makes sense. It feels like it's a mental illness or some form of grief. That is, she's not actually choosing the egg over her son. It's beyond her control or beyond
0: her ability to shape it or change it. Did you think that the son breaking the egg was an accident? Did you? No, I thought it was a deliberate. And I, and I wondered if the father had colluded in that. Mm.
1: Well, because she starts by saying the child's grown old enough to find his own tongue and then moves on to it. So he obviously tries to reason with her, saying you love yeah. the egg more than I do. And I have to say, if there's ever a kind of wake-up call for a mom or a parent, it's being accused of loving something more than you love your child. And what about the end? You know, this idea that there was something in the egg, there was a speck of blood in the egg, and that that somehow is a kind of Russian doll. For me, that harkens back to a kind of loss of a child or a, or a loss of a hope of a child or something, you know, that she can she can see evidence for what she was thinking.
0: And she wants to find evidence, though, doesn't she?
1: That mm, there's something there
0: that if only
1: she had taken care of or in some way just didn't grow to its full fruition.
0: I wondered if she was seeing something that wasn't actually. Oh, that's big. really interesting. Because it's a tiny fleck.
1: And that idea of how we all... That last line is beautiful. One precious thing inside another like Russian dolls. Or how we all are secretly inside. I'm not sure that I would have thought to describe anyone as a set of Russian dolls. Shall we move to talk about the poem? Alistair reads, Curiosity. Curiosity may have killed the cat. More likely... The cat was just unlucky, or else curious to see what death was like, having no cause to go on licking paws or fathering litter on litter of kittens, predictably. Nevertheless, to be curious is dangerous enough. To distrust what is always said, what seems, to ask odd questions, interfere in dreams, smell rats, leave home, have hunches, does not endear cats to those doggy circles where well-smelt baskets, suitable wives, good lunches are the order of things, and where prevails much wagging of incurious heads and tails. Face it, curiosity will not cause us to die, only lack of it will. Never to want to see the other side of the hill or that improbable country where living is an idyll, although a probable hell, would kill us all. Only the curious have, if they live, a tale worth telling at all. Dogs say cats love too much, are irresponsible, are dangerous, marry too many wives, desert their children, chill all dinner tables with tales of their nine lives. Well, they are lucky. Let them be nine-lived and contradictory, curious enough to change, prepared to pay the cat price, which is to die and die again and again, each time with no less pain. A cat minority of one is all that can be counted on to tell the truth. And what cats have to tell on each return from hell is this, that dying is what the living do, but dying is what the loving do. And that dead dogs are those who never know that dying is what, to live, each has to do. So do we think we're cats or dogs?
0: I think I have cat days and dog days. (laughs) (laughs) I love how
1: Alistair makes us all want to be the cat, you know. The dogs are made out to be the
0: boring, you know. Suitable wives and good lunches. Yeah,
1: although I do quite like a good lunch, I have to say, but... um... Yeah, I love that wagging of incurious heads and tails too.
0: I like the way that curiosity is painted out as something to aspire to because I don't think it's often seen like that, particularly in relation to children. It's kind of seen as quite an irritating trait.
1: (laughs) Or, but it's certainly something we lose in adulthood, isn't it? It's that kind of we're never really wanting to learn about new things, particularly if they're uncomfortable. So, you know, it's okay to try a new Netflix series, but to go to a place where we don't speak the language or, you know, not not necessarily sure of where we're going to stay or our next steps, just out of curiosity, seems a kind of frightening thing at our age in a way that it might not be for children. You know, they're forever climbing fences, even though they don't know what's on the other side.
0: It, it made me think a lot of that sort of switch, um, which happens in young children, where uh, they go through that stage where they say why mm. about a million times a day mm. I remember having phases of of children doing that my own children doing that where by bedtime I was just thinking please don't ask me why again <laughs> you start in the morning with that enthusiasm of giving long detailed explanations of why uh, and by bedtime you're just resisting the temptation to answer because it is yeah. well, just because um, yeah
1: yeah and I also wonder is it. Technology has changed that. Um, my youngest, who's 10 now, might want to know the answer to something and why something is. His instinct is to Google it. It isn't necessarily to ask me anymore. Curiosity seems to have changed form to know anything is possible in a way that just wasn't true even 10 or 15 years ago. I worry that the next generation won't feel that they need to go and see things for themselves because they can just look it up or you know, they can take a visual tour of Machu Picchu. Why go? You know, that's one of my real worries yeah. for this generation is almost seeing things online seems to have taken the place for do, from doing them in real life.
0: Yeah, I think we're going to see a big change in in behaviour and, and confidence and, and people choosing to be in places where there are other people. And I, th- I think it'll come back. I think it'll take a while for us to feel confident, having spent so much effort and energy and care in distancing ourselves from others. I wonder if it'll it'll take us a while to unravel that. Actually, that's a really
1: interesting thought. Is Do you think curiosity is linked to confidence?
0: I think you can be internally curious. I think you can be a curious individual and someone who doesn't necessarily outwardly display a lot of confidence.
1: The kind of person who will go and do something without knowing what it's going to be like strikes me as intrinsically linked to a certain sense of confidence.
0: I think you have to have a certain gung ness about you to exhibit the curiosity that is talked about in this poem.
1: And I think it goes into that, so the very end of that idea that you have to die to live, you have to let go of what you've got, all those sort of creature comforts, whether you're your security or anchor... You have to let that all go in order to live properly it's the search that's the fun not necessarily what it is that he finds like that that line only the curious have if they live a tale worth telling at all is it gorgeous it reminds me of that edward morgan piece we were talking about unknown is best you know that same like gotta yeah. go and do the thing otherwise we don't have a tale worth telling now maybe it doesn't matter that we don't have a tale worth telling if we're contented with that but for writers i suspect it, it matters Shall we swap over and talk about a little bit about
0: feedback from our groups this week? The newsletter this week has made it for the first time to Germany, which was fun to see, as well as getting to Austria and Australia and the USA. So uh, as we say every week, please keep sending it on to anyone you think might enjoy it. We really, really do like checking in to see how far it's got.
1: Lots of existing groups are getting back online this week, so we're having more and more people reaching out to us and putting these groups back online, which is great, as people, I think, kind of get more and more used to technology, so we're delighted to continue to grow those groups as well as our public groups. One of our lead readers has said that she's getting really passionate about how these groups really help to energize and uplift during the lockdown and beyond, so that's really nice to hear from um, someone who's used to running groups in person who's now swapped to doing them online. So please... Please join us for those groups if you fancy.
0: I loved the feedback from the Grassmarket Group this week who were reading Edwin Morgan's poem Strawberries and they managed to use the technology to pull up the poet's pub Mm -hmm. picture uh, Liz Lockhead mentioned in the introduction we read last week and share that online so everyone was able to have a look
1: another group used the strawberries poem to make their own sort of strawberry-esque poems and the litany that came out of that was lovely it was there were never something like we had something and the, the the litany was making sandwiches on the beach for a picnic eating oysters in paris i'd love to know who that was childhood friends who live in another country, listening to music in the cathedral so lots of you know people thinking of these lovely superlative moments of their own which was really nice
0: You can write to us at info at openbookreading.com or find out more about what we're doing at www.openbookreading.com. I think that's about all for us this week. Marjorie, time for you to go and get another slice of (laughs) banana, chocolate and peanut butter cake. Thanks again for having us in your ears this week and we look forward to being with you again soon.